For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how college seniors are coping in a year without a graduation ceremony. A look at the campus food pantry's efforts to improve food security for students and staff. Why a public health student is making it her mission to share accurate information about coronavirus with her family in Puerto Rico. And how volunteer backyard scientists are using quarantine time to record and share observations about the natural world. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. John Lennon was quoting the American writer Alan Saunders in his lyric, Life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. For college seniors, springtime usually brings a series of events that celebrate their graduation. But with the University of Arizona campus closed due to COVID-19, many are now experiencing a sense of loss. Next, some U of A students share their disappointments and concerns for the future in a story produced by Nina Shelton. Kylie Salyards, a communication and marketing major, was a campus tour guide. So I've given tours for the past four years of my college experience, so I actually never got to give my final tour that's been really upsetting for me individually because I just love sharing my experience with prospective students on campus. She's also in a sorority, which holds an annual senior week tradition. So not having that senior week to kind of one bond with your pledge class, but also share with freshmen in particular why I chose to stay, why these girls are so important to me, and why getting involved in an organization that's bigger than yourself, including our sorority, is so important. Entrepreneur and marketing major Raina Helfgott-Waters says she still hasn't really processed not being able to take part in final year milestones, including graduation itself. The light at the end of the tunnel has kind of always been commencement. Just knowing that I won't be able to get to celebrate with my friends that have become my family, essentially, it's really sad and it's, it's really a tough pill to swallow. And Helfgott-Waters has fears about how COVID-19 will impact her future beyond graduation. I'm a little concerned just because the industry that I've been working in and that I had my internship in requires a lot of human contact and a lot of it is centered around events. So just depending on how quickly the pandemic dies down depends on if I'll have to change my career path and change my goals and aspirations. Graduating senior Adam Myers says one of his biggest worries is money. A lot of his income comes from creating senior portraits of people on campus. A lot of my income that I survive off of comes from this last push of doing senior portraits for people and, you know, having the opportunity to be out on campus to take these pictures. But with the campus closing and everything else going on in the world, a lot of people have been texting me and either, you know, pulling out or they have to reschedule the way later or, you know, the bookstore still hasn't shipped their stoles and their graduation stuff because of all this. So you know, it's getting to a point where it's almost concerning that I'm like, am I going to be able to make enough money to survive? Along with income, future plans concerning commencement also weigh heavily on his mind. While May's commencement is canceled, President Robbins floated the idea of combining the spring class of 2020 graduation with another graduating class. 
All of the students we spoke with, including Myers, were against this. I'm feeling a pretty big sense of loss. It was very hard, especially to see graduation just sort of disappear at the drop of a hat and really not a second's notice. And, you know, just hearing them say, come to another class's graduation, like we'd be happy to have you. It's like, no, no one wants to come to another class's graduation. It's not yours. You want something that's your own. So it was, it was really hard to feel that sense of loss that the school just kind of gave up on all of us. Casey Ponton, a business major, says the cancellations were twice as hard for his family. My brother's the same year as I am in college, and uh, he's graduating from University of Texas, San Antonio. So now my mom didn't get to see either of her children walk across the stage. But while he is disappointed, he's also looking at the big picture. So I think when I look back 20 years from now, these are the things I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember, you know, making that sacrifice um, of not being able to graduate, but instead supplementing it with trying to help other people. All of this stuff was happening to keep people safe. The university is planning a live stream experience for graduates and their guests on May 15th and an in-person celebration that will coincide with homecoming on October 30th of 2020. The university is providing updates on plans for graduation at commencement.arizona.edu. This story was produced by Nina Shelton. Reacting to the COVID-19 pandemic, the University of Arizona has transferred classes online, closed the library, and much of campus. However, there are still students in town, and some of them rely on food assistance to get by. The campus pantry is still open to serve them and some university employees. This story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. I don't go to the groceries. I obtain most of my produce here in the campus pantry. The reason I come here is to save money because I don't have a lot to stretch. There's like extra buffer room that makes my life way less stressful. So if I have some incidental expense, there's a little extra because although I get paid by the university, it's not very much. But I know a lot of international students, and so the campus pantry really helps them not have to worry about that extra expense when they're already scrambling to figure out housing costs. Rocio, Armand, and Dana were among more than a 1,000 U of A students who used the supplementary grocery program every week. That was before the COVID-19 pandemic. Now we're seeing about 475 students per week, or um, individuals, I should say. So students, faculty, and staff are able to use the pantry. And so we're seeing there's a lot more staff members who might be like custodial staffs or maintenance staff. They're all using the pantry now, I think, because a lot of their positions have been cut back on hours or they need more support at this time. Bridget Nobby is a coordinator for the Campus Pantry. She says the pandemic has also brought new people to use the pantry and changed the proportion between international and domestic users. Definitely more international students, and I think that's because like international students are just still on campus. I think some of our domestic students went back home, whereas our international students, like, this is their home. So I estimate that we have a higher percentage, but not necessarily maybe more in quantity that we would have had before. To make distribution safer, the campus pantry moved to a bigger hall in the student union. That allows for a couple different things. So it allows for the line to be outside, more of an open air environment. It allows for social distancing and that we can spread our line out more and have people be further apart. We're hoping it's going to like diminish that spread. In front of the pantry, the safe distance between customers is marked on the floor with colored tape.
The volunteers and staff have masks and gloves on, and there's a hand sanitizer dispenser at the entrance. One thing that remains the same are the limits on how much food each person is allowed to take. We ask each individual to only take four points worth every time they're here. And that's just an arbitrary number that's based off of how much in value it is, in monetary value, and how many servings you can get out of it. So all of our points range from 0.25 to 2 being the highest. So a large box of cereal is 2 points because in theory you should get 8 to 10 servings depending on the size of the box. So we're hoping that students would only take one of those a week or one every two weeks. But then we have things like a piece of produce and that's 0.25 each. And we let students take 8 individual pieces of produce. For example, a can of beans is considered a half-point item. Things like a box of pasta, a can of sauce, a loaf of bread, and a half gallon of milk are each valued at one point apiece. It's completely mix and match. And we do that again because we're a supplemental grocery program. So students can come take the items they're in need of. If they can afford to go out and get ramen and cans of soup, we want to be able to get them the bread, the cereal, and the produce that they can't get. But if they can have access to milk or a meal plan to get meats and those types of things, and they just need snacks for between classes, we also have those items. Since the program started in 2012, it's been expanding the variety of items that are available to students. They now use a garden on the student union's roof to supply fresh vegetables, along with locally sourced eggs and milk and the standard donation items that include ramen, peanut butter, and canned foods. When the pandemic began, Nobby says the campus pantry faced food shortages. We usually buy bags of rice and beans and like cans of tuna and stuff. And then we just haven't been able to get that stuff in. Um, we've even been struggling sometimes getting milk and eggs, which is something that we have never had an issue with. But there's just like shortages in general with like Shamrock Farms. And so they're not donating milk to us, nor do they have quantities that we need to be purchasing. So trying to get all that food and be able to still support students has been a challenge. Bridget Nobby says the support and supplies come from the community. It's been really great to see people step up and try to help us get these items. We had started an Amazon Prime wish list, um, and that was really successful until Amazon kind of ran out of some of the items we were looking for. Also, different like uh, departments on campus have been promoting it is that like campus pantry needs food. The UA bookstore donated quite a bit of food by just asking their staff and faculty members to just um, come in and donate a couple items. The campus pantry is open three times a week on Tuesdays from 2 until 4 in the afternoon, and from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Wednesdays and Fridays. Everybody's asking, like, when are you going to close? And I just want to, like, say that the only reason that we would close would be if, like, the health department and, like, the whole university would be, like, we are completely closed. Like, you are not allowed to have distribution. We'll be here until somebody literally tells me I cannot. <laughs> I will be there. That story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. Next week, we take a look at how a local kitchen is making free meals available in our community. A major part of staying healthy during this pandemic is keeping updated on the latest news. But getting a steady flow of accurate information can depend a lot on where you are and what language you speak. Next, Elisa Resnick brings us the story of a U of A public health student from Puerto Rico who is trying to keep her family connected with the truth. 
Mireles Diaz-Martinez understands what a health emergency looks like. Disaster drove her from her own home in Puerto Rico almost three years ago. So the first two pictures are from my apartment complex during Maria. As you may see, the, do- the doors are kind of displaced because of the power of the wind. Seeing the destruction and confusion left by Hurricane Maria made Martinez want to be part of a solution. That's how she wound up pursuing a master's degree in public health at the University of Arizona. So when the coronavirus pandemic hit the U.S., the first thing she thought of was family back home. Very early on, even before Arizona did it, Puerto Rico was in lockdown. It made me remember a lot of things in Hurricane Maria. My anxiety went up thinking my family was there and no one was telling them what what was going on. Puerto Rico is still feeling the effects of the hurricane. Martinez's locals like her have left in droves in the last few years. Health professionals are taking higher-paying jobs on the mainland. Students are going elsewhere to continue their education. The impact of all those factors is coming back to the surface because of COVID-19. Plus, Martinez's information on the pandemic reaches Puerto Rico more slowly. And a lot of the time, it's also in English. There are not enough tests. There are not enough medical professionals. It's a difficult situation, so it's, it's in the hands of the community to stop this. That's the call Martinez intended to answer one day with her degree. But in the wake of the pandemic, she's using what she's already learned to support people digitally right now. The director of Lima County Health Department Martinez started doing Facebook Live events like this last month, all in Spanish and all on the coronavirus. She says at first, she used the space to answer questions she was hearing during calls back home. My parents don't have Facebook, but when I talk in those lives, I think this must be the same questions. And people do have those questions. Puerto Rico isn't the only place where language can make it hard to access information or care. Arizona is home to more than a million Spanish speakers, too. Martinez says her videos reach a few hundred people in both places every week. They've also caught attention elsewhere. She's been asked to speak at digital press conferences and for Spanish-language aid groups looking to find ways to break down coronavirus information quickly. But that also has challenges. Coronavirus news spreads fast, and not everything that appears is correct. Convincing people that you're the voice to listen to takes trust and time. A marginalized community like the Latino community and other people of color communities, we tend to be very skeptical about what we hear in the media, even if the information is right, because we've been so mistreated by history that we we tend to not really trust in everyone. Being a member of the community and a public health authority carries a special weight. Martina says that's especially true because there's just not that many out there. I believe that public health professionals that are people of color We're a very small community, but we're crucial in this time because if people can identify with you, they will trust you faster or a little better because your struggle is their struggle. She says this is a role many bilingual health workers are feeling right now, but... It's really hard for us, too. We need more information in Spanish. We need more health professionals in Spanish that can actually give accurate information. In the absence of that... Martinez says people start focusing on what is available, from home remedy tips to more malicious schemes. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of scams around, especially the Spanish 
speaking community because that information is not available for us right away. That leaves health workers battling misinformation as it spreads online. You're struggling with what the uncle or the abuelita said that he heard or she heard on the TV or on social media, and they want to tell you, you're wrong, I heard this, and, and it's really hard. In Martinez's case, Facebook Live has become an outlet to clear up some of those questions from the people she cares most about. She says watching how coronavirus information comes out, and when it doesn't, has brought up a question of her own. They say the language of science is English. It's always been in my mind, in the back burner of my mind. Like, why is it that most of the information is in English when it comes to science? Martina says that needs to change. And it can start with people like her. If you talk Spanish, that should not be a reason for you not to have the information. So I'm using my love for my identity to break the barrier and start having that right of good health that everybody deserves. Spanish speakers from a few different states tune into Martinez's videos online. She says she's happy other communities can take something away from them. But she hasn't lost sight of why she began the work in the first place. I started these lives to feel closer to home. I started thinking about what happens if if I go back home and, you know, my parents are sick or my uncles are sick. Martina says the hurricane has shown her how quickly and how bad things can turn in her home. Facing a new emergency from afar means adapting. What I wanted to accomplish with these lives is to translate the information for them so they have the information available. That way, they won't get sick. That's the only thing I can hope for. Martinez knows that means she won't be going home to visit anytime soon. She says until then, she'll keep posting updates, making sure her home is not forgotten. For Arizona Spotlight... I'm Elisa Resnick. We have some information on coronavirus safety in Spanish, available at azpm.org. If you're hearing this program on Thursday, April 16th is designated as National Citizen Science Day. Earth Day is coming up on April 22nd. Right now, there's a way that anyone can help add to the body of scientific knowledge known as phenology. It's the study of plant and animal life cycles and how these are influenced by the seasons and variations in climate. I asked Aaron Posthumus, the outreach coordinator at the USA National Phenology Network, which is headquartered at the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at the U of A, to tell us more. We actually realized really early on with the network that we needed to have a lot of different people helping out to collect information about plant and animal life cycle events. So we set up a program called Nature's Notebook, and it's been going on since 2009, so over 10 years now. And we have people all across the country that are contributing their observations of what they see. So even though you're based here at the University of Arizona and in Tucson, uh, you're not limited to this uh, region. That's right. Yeah, we have um, over 10,000 people across the country that are contributing. I think we're up to 13,000 this year that have participated in the program. What sort of observations are you looking for? What are the key things, Erin, that you want people to record? So we have one campaign in particular that's called Flowers for Bats. And that's a really great program for people to start out with because it involves making observations of saguaro cactus. And saguaros are really widespread across Tucson and across the southern part of Arizona. So a lot of people either have one in their yards or somewhere nearby. 
and they're a great way to get started because they're they're pretty simple plants. They don't have leaves. So when you report on what you're seeing on saguaros, you're just reporting things like flowers and fruits that you see on the cactus. And this is actually a great time to look at saguaros because they're just starting to put out their flower buds right now. Well, what about animal habitation? So we have a number of different species that you can observe in Nature's Notebook that depend on saguaros. So that would be a great thing to observe along with the flowering and the fruiting of saguaros. So things like the white-winged dove, those are doves that migrate up from Mexico, and they just started arriving in the last couple weeks. They typically try to time their arrival with when the saguaros are blooming because they love to feed on the nectar, and they're really important pollinators for saguaros. Erin, when you said that the Flowers for Bats program was a good place to start, that kind of implies that if you enjoy that, you can go deeper with your research. Yeah, exactly. If you're comfortable making observations of cactus, then you can try out a plant that's maybe a little bit more complicated, like maybe one of our wildflowers. So we have things like um, Perry's penstemon or um, milkweeds that are on our list. So those would involve making observations of flowers, but you could also observe the leaves on the plants as well. Can people who want to get involved with this project expect any help from the National Phenology Network? Yeah, we have a lot of different training resources on our website. When people sign up for a Nature's Notebook account, they have the opportunity to take a training course. It only takes about 45 minutes, and it's all online, so you can walk through the different steps of the course and learn how to do observations that way. We also have a number of different resources like our How to Observe Handbook that you can read through. We have a a botany primer that goes through all the different parts of plants that you need to know about to make observations. So if you sign up for a campaign like Flowers for Bats, we'll actually send you a newsletter once a month or so, and that'll give you updates on what other people are observing so you can compare what you're seeing on your own plant to what others are seeing. And then it also just gives you information about how the data are going to be used by researchers. Have you seen a rise in numbers of people participating in the project or perhaps spending more time with their observations right now while we're living under these pandemic conditions in the U.S.? We have seen an uptick in the people observing in their own backyards. I think people have seen that something that gives them a purpose for going outside, even just for a few minutes a day, to look at what's happening in their yards and It allows you to just slow down for a little bit and just pay attention to things that are unfolding that don't seem to care about the pandemic because they're just going on as usual with putting on their flowers and the birds making their nests. For parents that have kids stuck at home, nature's notebook could be a really great thing to do as a family. Um, You can do it for short chunks of time. So you could head outside with your kids for just five or 10 minutes and take a look at a plant or look for an animal and learn something about that species and then also contribute to a national effort to understand how climate change is impacting plants and animals. One of the citizen scientists who lends years of experience to the Nature's Notebook is Hank Verbeus. He's both a master gardener and a master naturalist, and he volunteers as a docent at Tohono Chul Park, a nature preserve on Tucson's northwest side. I participate uh, and have been a part of the Nature's Notebook study at Tohono Chul for about four years. At Tohono Chul, we're studying six species of plants and three species of animals. And then we record that data uh, on on an application using a smartphone, and then that's transmitted automatically to the Nature's Notebook database. 
When you mentioned the animal species, Hank, do you know off the top of your head what those three species are? Monarch butterflies, queen butterflies, and something called a pipevine swallowtail butterfly. Uh, the queen butterfly and the pipevine swallowtail are really with us more or less year-round. Uh, I think everybody knows that uh, monarch butterflies migrate, uh, so there are times of the year when we see less uh, monarchs than we do at other times. Although what we've found, and th this is just anecdotal data, it's not been proven out, but we're, we're fairly certain that we've got a year-round population of monarch butterflies or that migrate from other parts of the U.S. and get this far and look around and say, wow, it's pretty nice here. I, I'm, I'm not going any further than this. I'm spending the winter here. So they have something in common with snowbirds. Exactly. And I love to do this. I love to talk about what I do. You know, I'm just an old guy, and uh, I, I've really found a true calling in connecting with nature. You know, I'm retired, and, and I, I love doing this, and I love sharing it with people. Next, I spoke with Madison. She's a 17-year-old high school student born and raised in Tucson who recently discovered that she has a passion for bird watching. So I got involved with the Phenology Network with ITE. I started going on a lot of birding expeditions and just started doing a lot of citizen science with Iowa Tree Experience and the National Park Service. What is it about birding that you enjoy? Some people look at that hobby and don't really understand it. When I first got into birding, I was a little skeptical. I was like, this is kind of boring. But then once I actually got outside and started looking at the birds, it was just so thrilling and so fascinating seeing all these birds that we hear, but we don't really pay attention to. They're just so unique and just learning about them and just having that relief of being outside was just so comforting to me. Well, what kind of observations are you called on to make during your participation with the Phenology Network? When we spot a bird, we normally try to look at tail feather length, what the bird is actually doing, beak size, and body size. And then we look at our bird books and confirm with other people so we have an accurate judgment of what this bird is. Well, during the time that we're going through right now with social distancing and the pandemic in effect... Have you still been able to pursue your outdoor hobbies? Yes, even more, actually. I have a lot more time on my hands. I've been able to go outside and bird by myself and go on hikes by myself and just really have some detox time. Well, was there anything else that you wanted to say about being a volunteer with the uh, NPN on this project? I think it has opened up my life to birding, and I think I'll never stop. Thanks to Aaron, Hank, and Madison, who all participate in the USA National Phenology Network's Nature's Notebook. It's a volunteer science program based at the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at the University of Arizona. There's a link to connect with them on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.